0: Brewers Publications, a.k.a. BP, is the largest publisher of contemporary brewing literature for today's craft brewers, homebrewers, and beer enthusiasts. With over 50 titles to choose from, there is a beer book to fill most needs. Whether you're just discovering beer or are a seasoned professional, BP is the go-to choice for brewers looking to expand their knowledge and hone their craft. Check out the complete BP catalog at BrewersPublications.com. Everybody, welcome again to another episode of The Brew Files. I'm Drew, and I'm currently sitting here with one Mr. Mike. Mr. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody?
1: Hey, uh, my name's Michael Tonsmeyer. I run the blog The Mad Fermentationist, themadfermentationist.com. I wrote American sour beers. I've worked with Modern Times brewing out in San Diego developed some of their recipes. And I'm just an all-around beer nerdy individual.
0: literally the man who wrote the book on sour beer. I was hoping that we could dig into one of your recipes and really kind of get into the nitty-gritty of your design process and really how you drive where your flavors go with one of you. you got a recipe for us?
1: Yeah, I, I do. This is a, it's an interesting recipe. let's put it that way. It's a, a Belgian strong, dark sour beer that ended up with cherries, even though that isn't where it started.
0: Well, I think this is part will what we'll get into.
1: Exactly. So I, I think for this recipe, even though I just brewed it in 2012, I need to go back to the 90s. Uh-oh. So in the late 90s, uh, Palm bought out Rodenbach, the great Belgian Flemish red producer. Of the many things they did, including killing Alexander Rodenbach, their delicious cherry beer, because it was too similar to uh, Bones Creek, another beer in their portfolio. They also stopped allowing the brewery to sell its yeast to other small Belgian breweries, places like Duranc and De Dole. And this was a, a big issue for these small breweries who didn't have labs, didn't maintain their own cultures, but relied on that lactic acid bacteria Saccharomyces Britannomyces blend that Rodenbach had as their house culture to get their own beers going. And different breweries took different tacks after that. Um, in the case of De Dole, for a while, they just tried to repitch that same culture they had. But if you've ever tried to repitch a mixed culture, you'll know that the proportions, depending on how quickly you repitch, what kind of beer it is, the IBU levels, all those sorts of things, um, the the blend changes, the ratios change, the yeast might get more uh, aggressive as you know they um, acclimate to the alcohol level, and that's actually exactly what happened at De Dole. They ended up with a bunch of beers that were super overcarbonated. And uh, it, it was particularly still still knocked their uh, Christmas winter beer. They ended up open up these highly explosive bottles, pouring them back into into Bordeaux casks. And lucky lucky for them, it turned out to be this delicious and, and at this point sort of you know probably almost non-existent white whale of a beer. But it was so good that they did the same thing with Aura beer. Their dark, stronger. I'm sorry, actually a little bit weaker than that. I think the sort of the ball version is maybe 8%. Um, they decide, hey, toss it into some barrels, see what happens. Um, Peter Buchart from, Ron, uh, from previously Rodenbach and now New Belgium helped them out by isolating some of the Britannomyces that was in uh, those older beers. They now pitch that into there and what is an 8 or 9% beer um, when it's just sort of bottled without brett, uh, clean – into like an 11, 12, 13% beer, depending on the vintage, when it's barrel aged with Brett. A lot drier. One of my favorite beers of all time. It is, it's not particularly consistent. Some years it is, you know, loads of dark fruit. Sometimes you get a little blue cheese, funky stink to it. Um, you get some barrel. You get all kinds of interesting, unique flavors. And and like a lot of really big, strong beers that have Brett and barrel aging and all that, It it really is. A smooth, easy drinking, almost port like kind of experience.
0: Yeah, you know, I was gonna say I love the but one of the things I would never say about them is that they're consistent. But that's kind of fun.
1: Exactly, and and particularly to me as a home brewer, that's a great thing to um, embrace. That you know your beers don't have to be exactly the same. You're not trying to meet you know consumer demand. You can explain to people you know why this beer tastes a little different than that one. I, I think it's the same reason brew pubs don't have the same. Quality control threshold that maybe a brewery that is sending out to supermarkets maybe needs. But so the, the general concept for this beer was to do something similar. And this is actually a recipe I originally wrote for Modern Times. When I was out there three years ago, I wrote a bunch of recipes for sour beers that we were going to brew, barrel age. But as I, I don't know uh, if any of the listeners out there have ever tried to scale up a recipe with a with a brand new brewery, sometimes targets go a little bit off. And in our case, what happened was they brewed the the Flemish Red recipe that I'd written, and they must have just gotten you know again better extraction on commercial level. More color came out of it, and that actually ended up being the sour brown that we brewed, which is called and now it's slipping slipping from my grasp, um, <laughs> empty hats. So that was empty hats and then we had another beer that was going to be bigger, darker, some candy syrup. And what they ended up doing was taking the candy syrup out of that, lightening it up a little bit and that became the Flemish Red, uh which is called I want to say Neverwear, but it's not Neverwear, it is who knows. I I can't keep track of all these names. <laughs> well,
0: I was going to say Modern Times has a uh, quite a raft of beers.
1: Yeah, exactly. This beer actually never got brewed on the on the commercial level, but I decided, "Hey, I went to the effort of writing this recipe, I might as well brew it myself. What I really wanted to do was use the Brett strains from a Beer Special Reserver, which I love so much. And, you know, so much of the character of sour beers is the microbes themselves. It's a, again, it's a big 12, 13% beer. I wasn't sure, you know, I, again, you know, I got a bottle that was probably, you know, six months or a year old. I assume there's probably some Brett in there, but I thought maybe just swirling up the dregs from the bottom and tossing those in along with um, some brewer's yeast. Might not get get going, you know, the cell count might be low enough that it's just going to be out-competed, might not end up doing anything. So I got a bottle and I sent it off to Nick at the Yeast Bay, and he offered to try to culture it up for me. And he pulled a couple of things out of it, sent, you know, propped them up, sent me some samples, and I decided to use those along with – actually, my, my original plan was to use the um, y yeast Belgian wheat strain, which is uh, supposed to be of Dodol origin – I don't know if that's true or not, but I managed to knock over a five-liter starter of it and break it. So <laughs> I I used uh, T58, I believe, just sort of the standard, yep, T58, just sort of the standard dried Belgian option. Uh, and honestly, when you're aging a beer that long and you're adding microbes to it, I don't think that the primary yeast strain is sort of an essential part of that. But taking a step back to the uh, grain bill and all that, Um, This is one where I I couldn't get and I didn't I didn't feel like uh, trying to bother to dole and get, you know, their their magic out. But I wanted to go for something that had a real sort of packed with malt flavor. So uh, pale malt based rather than something like Pilsner for 63 percent, 18 percent Munich malt, again, building those bready, you know, full malty flavors to even go a a step further on that 5 percent biscuit malt, which is not something I'd ever used in a sour beer before. But again, trying to, you know, amp up that maltiness without, you know, sending it off in necessarily a strongly, um, you know, dark fruit direction or something like that. Um, I use Crystal 60, American Crystal 60. I find that to be one of the most sort of um, like caramel-y ones rather than having a really um, a distinct flavor of, again, you know, raisins or plums or anything like that, like some of the caramunics do and some of the darker crystal malts. For color, I'll craft a special three. I'm not looking for chocolate or roast or anything, just looking for a little bit darker color, and and with that, some dark uh, candy syrup. Again, that's where I'm getting some of those more caramel and a little bit of the, uh, the dark fruit from.
0: We're talking a little bit about the grain, but uh, what are the specifications on the recipe in terms of the numbers, roughly, to start with?
1: Sure. Um, it started at uh, 1070, so mm-hmm. big. But again, when you're doing a sour beer, it's going to dry out, and so you're going to end up at probably 8% alcohol rather than that sort of rule of thumb of, you know, 1070 is going to make about a 7% beer, 1060 is going to make about 6%. Um, it might even be, could end up a little bit higher than that if you get great attenuation. 17 IBUs from Palisade at 60 minutes really doesn't matter much what what kind of hops you're throwing in there. Um, you're really not going to taste much bitterness after that long aging. I don't think aged hops are a huge component in dark sours. I do think that they add something to you know lambic style beers, but for something like this, I wasn't trying to push that real rustic edge. SRM 20, 21 SRM.
0: So you're you're dark, but you're not you're not pitch black.
1: Exactly, looking for that sort of nice leathery brown. Um, you know, hopefully you know translucent. Certainly, um, you know some red highlights. Those kinds of things.
0: So we get all this sort of build up here with a little bit of sweetness. Not really going. Not going for the sort of traditional dark fruit type character, but going for more uh, kind of red chew. I I almost kind of, I think Uh, the hops are almost inconsequential. You can almost use anything in this. It sounds like, and then just a relatively neutral ale strain to start with.
1: Exactly. And, and with most sour beers, it's just sort of based on what I have on hand. I'll often repitch slurry that I'm harvesting from some clean beer that I happen to have, English ale or whatever in. Um, I think the primary strain is important if you're going to drink it relatively young. And I'm a big fan of drinking young sour beers, young beers conditioned with bread. But in this case, I'm aging it out. The bread is going to um, eat through most of the esters they're produced, change the phenols, um, make its own phenols. It's again not as essential what what strain you're using.
0: Yeah. I was, when I first started to learn how to do sour beers, I was uh, learning from NB Rains. The mm-hmm. one thing that I, I think almost all of her sour beers were started with a base of, you know, USO5, Yeah, <laughs> something very neutral because whatever.
1: Yeah. And, and like new Belgium uses lager yeast. I mean, they're, they're really, um, you can do some great things without having a, a particularly characterful strain, but on this one, you know, I, I went Belgian because I actually, a lot of, um, the sort of smaller, um, uh, Belgian brewers use, uh, T58 and other dried strains, just because again, they don't have labs. They're not, mm-hmm you know keeping keeping slants of things going they're often you know what what we hear about borrowing from other people getting dried yeast um you know very very much like home brewers
0: well it's funny to me like you when you start digging around into a lot of these small breweries you kind of start to realize that they're far less precious and precise about what it is that they're doing than than we kind of get into yeah
1: and and in a lot of ways i mean a a beer like this you know it's it's the barrels and it's the the you know the microbes that are in the barrels unless the um nitty gritty specifics. You know, I I generally for sours don't get too bent out of shape about the um, specifics of the grain bill, Um, you know, particularly for the paler sours. My my friend Nathan Zender from Right Proper likes to say that, you know, it sort of doesn't matter what grains you add. It's just, you know, whatever color it is, then it's a brown sour beer. It doesn't matter if it's, (laughs) you know, I'm not sure I would go quite that far, but there is some truth to that, that. I wouldn't get bent out of shape about is it 10% weed or 20% wheat After three years and all those microbes, no one can taste the difference.
0: Right. I was, was going to say, I mean, at some point in time, the beer becomes more about the expression of the bugs than it is about the expression of the other ingredients.
1: Exactly. And, and that actually turned out to sort of be the problem on this one is that whatever those microbes were that Nick was able to pull out of that bottle – were not the microbes that were responsible for the flavor. They really just sort of, I gave them like six months or eight months, and they just didn't do anything. There really, there was a little bit of a pellicle that formed, but there wasn't much funk, there wasn't much interest going on. It really just sort of sat there. And that's not what you want when uh, you're, you're making a sour beer. You want to see activity, you want to see life, you want to see the gravity dropping, you want to see flavors being produced. This this wasn't Sour Sour, it was just supposed to be a little funky, maybe a little tart. But I ended up just tossing in, as as I got more uh, bottles of Dodol or a Beer Special Reserva, I would toss those dregs in as I drank them, and eventually... I kind of got bored of it, and it just sort of sat there for a long time. So I brewed this uh, back uh, November 2013, and I ended up adding sour cherry juice like six months ago, or something like that. It really oh no, a year ago, what's that? No, like two years later.
0: Uh, I want to touch on one thing though, real quick, sure. because yeah, you you just very casually are like oh you know as as one does when one has all these bottles of the uh, uh, orer beer. So how many bottles did
1: you throw into this? I Probably two. Honestly, I, I was just looking through my, my notes, and it wasn't even something that I, like, you know, had notes on, like, oh, added one on this day, added one on that day. It was just sort of – it's one of my favorite beers. And it's one of those that any time I see it, no matter where I am, no matter what it costs, I buy a bottle of it.
0: And We all have those, I think. Mine's, uh, mine's a Vic Bon Vu. Ooh,
1: very nice. All right. Now,
0: so we get six months down the line. No real, uh, no real activity that that you're really digging on. You kind of lose it in the closet for a while, or in your cellar, I guess.
1: Exactly. It's it's just sort of down there. And honestly, I'm not in a hurry with most of my sours. You know, I I think when I started brewing sours, I I was taking samples all the time and so excited. And now I dread the day that something's ready because it means I have to clean bottles, I have to prime it, I have to bottle it, I have to go through this. Exactly. Um, I'm just as happy to let it sit there.
0: All right. So you say about a year ago, we had, you added uh sour cherry juice.
1: Exactly. I had sour cherry concentrate from King Orchard uh, that sent me a bottle to play with. And that's some really good I, stuff. It, it was terrific. And so I had about a pint of it. Um, and that was the equivalent of, I forget, it was like 10 pounds of cherries, something mm-hmm. like that. And again, um, because normally when you add fruit, you're not adding a huge amount of alcohol because you're adding water in addition to the sugar. You're Diluting the alcohol that's there, but you're also adding sugar back. And so, for a big beer like this, the the net effect of adding fresh sour cherries or you know un, undiluted cherry juice is at best neutral and may actually even dilute the alcohol um, just a little bit. But in this case, this stuff is like I forget what it is, you know, like 70 bricks or something.
0: Yeah, it's it's ridiculously thick.
1: Exactly. And so in this case, what had been a 1070 beer now may be more like a 10. 80 beer or something like that so i'm adding more sugar i'm adding uh and and one of the things i love about fruit i i don't ever almost plan to add fruit to a beer particularly a really long-aged beer Mm -hmm. because i want to leave myself open to where this beer is going um if you commit to add fruit you might have this beautiful delicate fresh flavor and then if you dump a whole load of cherries in It's going to kind of taste like cherry juice, and that can be delicious, but it also isn't maybe the best use for that particular beer. I think where fruit really excels is when you add it to a beer that's a little bit bland, that doesn't have enough acidity, that is looking for a a kick. I think that's part of the magic of what Lambic brewers do. It's not like they set out to brew a batch of creek. They brew a whole lot of base Lambic, and they're choosing their favorite barrels to be in the, you know, unblended cuvee, and... The very good stuff to be blended into, um, you know, a, a, a goose, and then the stuff that well maybe it's a little bit, you know, lackluster. It's lacking a little of that aromatic finesse. It's lacking maybe a signature flavor. Great, that's that's perfect for fruit. And then to me, dry hops are on the other end. Dry hops are what I use if it's a little bit bland and too sour. Dry hops will raise the pH a little bit, but do that same, you know, add some aromatic uh, interest. And so in this case, it needed it needed some acidity. It needed some flavor. It needed some punch. And so fruit is going to add acids. It's going to add sugars that will feed the microbes that are at work. And uh, so I, I tossed that sour Cherry concentrate in there. I gave it probably four or five more months just to make sure that, you know, again, this is an older, stronger beer. I just add a lot of sugar, make sure it has time to completely ferment out. And, you know, it tasted pretty good. And I was, I was finally, I had enough effort to bottle it. And that's sort of what I need. I, and that's sort of what keeps me honest. If if a beer doesn't taste good, I'm not going to put in that, you know, two hours of effort to to bottle it. And so it's sort of a natural waiting mechanism where, hey, it tastes good now. It dried back out again to about the gravity it was when I add the, uh, the fruit. Hey, perfect. Add some priming sugar back in September. Bottled it a little fresh yeast, a little champagne yeast to make sure it conditioned. It, it, it finally worked out after uh, about three years. So, in other words, this is not
0: a uh, quick turnaround kettle sour product.
1: no, it isn't, but this is also the sort of beer that if I had pitched the right microbes quote unquote right microbes initially, say I'd you know made a starter from those uh, or beer dregs and gotten something you know from maybe a fresher bottle or pitched some rosellaire from my yeast along with it you know some my my general tact is to add both um commercial microbes and dregs just as a you know, backup safety. Um, Cause dregs can be a little unpredictable, but they can also have a lot more interesting flavor than the, the lab grown stuff.
0: Well, I was going to say it's, it's like the lab stuff. You get your guarantee that you know, what's coming with it. And then with the, the dregs, you're kind of getting more of your, your fill notes, your, your, the other things, the little micro notes that you're not necessarily going to get from a monoculture.
1: Exactly. And and you, you're you going to get some microbes there, hopefully maybe a little more acid and alcohol tolerant. And again, for a big beer like this, that that can be a real benefit. And that's to me like that's kind of the big message with sour beers is that you can't think of them in the same way you think about every other beer style. You can't put them on a really firm track. And just because I'm telling you what worked for me, you know, good good luck, you know imitating exactly what I just described. It's more a thought process. It's more of a way to approach brewing that, you know, get a bunch of sour beers going and then let them speak to you, you know, taste them once every couple of months, take gravity readings, take pH readings, pay attention to the flavors, pay attention to, you know, where they're going. And and again, don't just put that beer aside for a year and expect it to be good. Start tasting it at least by six months. If you're not tasting progress, if you're not seeing changes, um, it's time to audible. It's time to pitch something different. It's time to, you know, begin formulating a plan um, rather than just sitting and waiting and hoping that it, it improves.
0: This is one of the few places I see that brewers start to have to behave more like vintners. Oh, definitely. In the world of winemaking, the world of cider making, the world of mead maker, making, uh, you see that Brewer, the vintners are basically paying attention to what's coming out, and they're, they're not done until it goes into the bottle. But brewers, a lot of brewers at least, seem to be obsessed with the idea that, I mean, aside from maybe some dry hopping, that what they get into
1: the fermenter is the final product that they have. And and even large breweries do a lot of blending, but it's blending for consistency. It's blending to this one was a quarter Play-Doh too high, and this one was this will brew one that's a quarter Play-Doh lower to, you know— it's 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 fine tuning and sour beer is all about um, maximizing making the best beer you can and it may not necessarily be exactly the beer that you set out to brew a year a year and a half earlier.
0: It really is. You have to pay attention to what it is that you've got. Yeah, we always coach people. You know, like look, if you're going to go into competition, don't enter the beer that you thought you made. Enter the beer that you made. And this is kind of that writ again.
1: <laughs> exactly, and and. And that's honestly that's the same thing for sour beer. I mean, you know, don't you know it, it it's you're not gonna end up hopefully with a Flemish red if you were trying to brew uh, a, a goose. You know, it's it's more the the path you're going to take and, and um part of that is brewing with the goal of blending. So, you know, if you just brew one lambic, you kind of don't have a lot of options. Right. If you brew a lambic ish style plambic, whatever you want to call it, word every six months and you pitch um, let's say, dregs from a different goose into each one, or you have some with oak and some without, or some with aged hops and some with fresh hops, and um, some they're a little stronger, some they're a little weaker, some they're mashed at 158, some they're mashed at 148. You know, again, intending to build in um, options rather than trying to just brew the exact same recipe over and over and over again. Um, and you can do that, it might it might work out well, but without having the barrels and the individual characters that a true spontaneous fermentation has, you may end up with a bunch of beers that oh. Maybe don't taste exactly the same, but taste kind of similar. Let's stop
0: and think about it. Vinny from Russian River, who you can you can argue is one of the best and most consistent sour beer brewers out there. I mean, what does he do? He has barrels on hand that are more acidic, less acidic, more funky, less funky. And all those beers that we end up having in those bottles are blends out of that. Exactly. And he always keeps those sour, that those supremely sour beers around. Not because he's going to serve them to anybody, but because they can come in and they can goose up the character of the, the beer that he's making.
1: And now he's actually – he he used to just save particularly sour batches. Now he actually produces a an acid beer mm-hmm. with solely the house culture – so he has enough of that beer to, to as you said, goose up the beers that need just a little more acid, a little more kick. It's always easier with anything to turn up the volume than it is to turn down the volume. Yeah, absolutely. It's always easier to use a little less vanilla than you think you might need and then add a little vanilla extract at bottling than it is to try to pull individual vanillin molecules out of the imperial porter after, after they're in there.
0: Yeah, in other words, uh, let's try and not make our beers the –
1: you know, Doritos,
0: Nacho Jacked, Extreme flavor.
1: It it depends. I mean, that is, that seems to be one of the big trends in beer right now is these beers that are over the top, intensely flavored like chocolate or fruit or whatever, whatever have you. And that's not my particular interest. They can be fun to try at a tasting, but I don't generally want five gallons of them to drink myself at home.
0: <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, so now we talked that you use Things like your fruits in order to kind of bump up your character when you feel like they're not sour enough. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, after all, fruit tends to carry a lot of fresh acid flavor to it. Uh, you, we talked that you use hops to actually kind of sort of soften some of the sourness because of the pH raising effect. Exactly. Which, by the way, that's a that's a new one. I mean, that's kind of cool. I'm going to have to play with that. There are other common flavors that we see in sour beers, things like uh, oak.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, how, how do you how do you think of oak? Like, when when do you turn to look at that?
1: Um, so I'm I'm pretty subtle with my oak usually. Um, in most cases, I'm trying to look at back at my notes if I added any oak. I don't think I add any oak to this one. Usually I'll just add a pretty small amount right when I rack to secondary. So in the case of this one, I rack to secondary after about two weeks. That's normally the amount of time I give. I'm not trying to get all the yeast out of a beer like this. But I tend to like dark sours that aren't aged on the yeast itself. Um, lambics traditionally are aged on that primary yeast cake, and as the brewer's yeast, the Saccharomyces, breaks down, it releases fatty acids, releases um, sugars that the Britannomyces can then use, and part of that classic Lambic character, again, you don't get autolysis because the Britannomyces is sort of protecting you from that, but you do get, and I hate I hate the word, but there is a better term for it, rusting. Mm-hmm. Um you know, that, that sort of deeper, earthier, funkier flavors that you associate with, say, Lambic, but maybe that you don't get in a lot of the american sours for me darker sours i tend to like them let that most of that primary yeast drop out transfer to a secondary and then i'll add half an ounce one ounce of oak something like that for five gallons if i need more later on i'll add it for a long time i would soak oak cubes in some sort of spirit or wine or whatever it is mm-hmm. and i realized that really the only reason i was doing that was to mimic barrel flavors and the reason that a lot of brewers use barrels is that they can't legally add a a bottle of wine or a bottle of bourbon to their beer. As a home brewer, I'm not bound by that TTB regulation. and So if I want a little wine character, I'll add a little bit of wine or a little bit of port or a little bit of sherry or brandy or whatever it is directly to the beer. Mm -hmm. I don't find that I get any benefit from that sort of the middle man, soaking the oak in there. I think it's pretty much just soaking some of it up like a sponge. I don't think it's selectively taking some molecules over the other. That isn't to say that it doesn't that, – that barrels don't have a little bit of an advantage. I think that Angel Share, you you are concentrating flavor compounds in the wood a little bit more um, selectively because alcohol is going in, alcohol and water evaporate, and you're sort of getting a, a concentrate of bourbon in there. So you are getting maybe more bourbon flavor from a bourbon barrel without all of the alcohol that just adding straight bourbon does. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that oak cube soaked in bourbon for a week – are doing the same thing, you know, they're submerged completely, you're knocking evaporation from the surface of the cube. There are rotary evaporators, I've always wanted to play with one of those. Um, and, you know, you can set them to a particular temperature, evaporate out the ethanol and concentrate those uh, volatiles. I, that, I think that would be really fun. I know uh, some high-end cocktail bars are starting to play with those, but it involves having a vacuum pump and a water bath and very precise controls over a lot of things that as a lonely homebrew blogger i can't justify uh for a experiment
0: yeah i always kind of look at some of these gadgets that are out there and go i really want to play with those and i go i have no way to say to myself yes you should totally have that
1: yeah exactly even now that i can write it off um it still is not entirely worth it but finding you know finding somebody you know a lab surplus or whatever it, it sounds like it you know it's um something interesting but it's also something you can't scale up again to a commercial level likely because there's no matter what you do, there's going to be some trace of that that alcohol in there. And as far as the TTB is concerned, you cannot add uh, alcoholic beverages to beer without uh, causing yourself all sorts of headaches.
0: Yeah, and then suddenly you become a whole other tax, rate And everything else.
1: Exactly, different different licensing and all that. But for oak, I I tend to be pretty subtle. Keep it keep it light. Again, it's always easy to add more. You know, I don't think it's always necessary. So many sour beers are not oak forward. They have a little bit of oak, um, you know, from third, fourth, fifth use barrels. And so again, it's it's to taste. Um and making a beer that is particularly oaky that you want to blend in is one option, as is just adding a little extra oak after sort of the the time scale for your oak. You know, if if it's cubes, you know, after three three, six months, something like that, you've probably extracted all the oak flavor you're gonna get. Okay, you can add more if it needs more. Yeah,
0: and I've I've done the thing where I have oak cubes soaking in bourbon for I think I have some now that are like 13 years old and I've used cubes and I've also just used the bourbon, but you also have to use very, very small amounts of that.
1: Yeah. It's oak, oak concentrate at that point, more than bourbon.
0: Yeah, exactly. Any other flavors that you find that people should pay attention to when they're looking at one of these sour beer projects?
1: No, not really. I mean, it really I, – I, sort of that story I told at the beginning about Dodol, I think it all comes down to developing your palate, that if all you ever do is drink your own sour beer, it's it's hard to grow as a sour beer blender. Drinking with other people who love sour beer, drinking really great sour beer, you know, there's sour beer starting to pop up in a lot of places. It is as as you mentioned, the kettle sour quick thing that – there's not a lot of depth there's not a lot of complexity and that that can be a great thing in some cases where I and mean, those are the beers i love loading in fruit or loading in dry hops that you know those are the stars not the um the fermentation but if you really want to be able to brew and blend and pick the right beers the more beers you drink the more notes you take the more you drink with people who uh, whose palates you appreciate i think the better your your palate's going to become the better you'll be able to sort of um taste and see and honestly, one of the best things you can do is split batches. In this case, I just had the sour cherry juice to the whole thing. It wasn't great as is. But often what I'll do, if a beer is pretty good, I'll bottle half of it as is, and I'll rack the rest into a three-gallon carboy onto the fruit or onto the dry hops or whatever it is. And then I can have those two beers right next to each other. And I can go, wow, this is so much better without that. Or, wow, I wish I'd add that to all of it. And that's a little mental note for me. Next time I have a beer that tastes similar to this – okay that's that's where I should go with the fruit or wow, well, don't you know trust that that bread is going to come through in the bottle as it conditions. Trust that it's going to pop with carbonation and again it's you know i've I've been doing this for ten years now, and i I still cannot call myself a sour beer expert. I mean I think anytime you label yourself as as having all the answers, you've stopped appreciating and searching and improving your beer and and your process and your palate and and your Knowledge of all the options that are out there. And I, I really am so happy that so many breweries all over the country are starting to turn out great sour beers that you no longer have to look to just five or six people as the guys who know sour beer. There are hundreds of breweries and tens of thousands of home brewers of, of all skill levels and all backgrounds who are creating interesting, delicious, uniquely them sour beers.
0: Well, there you go. And, and yeah, and I always say you have to find – that one or two people that are like right in your area who seem to have that absolute magic touch. Yeah. And you'll know them because there's something uh, Rasputin-esque about this.
1: <laughs> well, I think there's something to be said for specialization too. I mean, the, the more you focus on one thing, the better it's going to the better you're going to get at it.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, Mike, uh, before we uh, leave this recipe behind, uh, any other notes or comments of things that you think people should think about?
1: No. I mean, just, I, I think about what fruit flavors go well with what beers. To me, I like Belgian Creeks, the, you know, pale beer with, with cherry. But to me, the dark, the roast, the maltiness backs up, you know, stands up to a strong beer, like uh, a strong flavor, like cherries versus I think of, you know, uh, a lighter, brighter white wine, grapes, apricot, peaches. Those are the sorts of flavors I love in pale sours. Again, try, try different things, split batches, see what works for you. Try blending a little fruit juice into a beer to get a sense of the flavor. You know, what's going to overwhelm what? What's going to blend with what?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've had your immersive course in dark sour beers from an expert, even though he doesn't want to call himself. Mike, thanks so much for taking your time on the show. Uh, I appreciate it. And we'll have you back, obviously, at some point, if you're willing.
1: Of course. This is is a lot of fun. It's, It's great to talk shop.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope you enjoyed this peek into Mike's head. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, recipes, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us individually at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Reddit, on Facebook, on just about every homebrew forum out there. Well, and don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes or your favorite podcast subscription service click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two, or more, to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or I suppose Denny would say, or brew experimentally. Thank you.